what gives you the right? That's not so much a question as a challenge, almost confrontational, when somebody's doing something you don't like or think they shouldn't do, or perhaps even more you think they shouldn't be able to do. That can often open the door to yet more squabbling and disagreement over who gets to do what and when and who gets to decide, and that rarely gets happily resolved. Now imagine that writ large, literally, in a world in recovery from its greatest conflict with quite different ideas about what we're all entitled to, and you see the challenges faced in trying to define, word by word, the essence of the rights every person shares just by saying so. A document that changed the world, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, adopted by the United Nations General Assembly as Resolution 217A in Paris, 1948. I'm Joe Janes of the University of Washington Information School, and we're all about words here. Let's start with something easy. What are human rights? Your response might be much like mine at first. Uh, how hard can that be? Precisely. One textbook on the topic starts with exactly that question and calls it one of the major achievements of modern-day philosophy, rather than, say, an object of law or statecraft or faith. Discussions rapidly get into very broad and noble concepts such as freedom, equality, self-determination, and so on. At the highest level, it's hard to imagine disagreeing with such sentiments, though, as ever, the devil is in the details and not everybody, or importantly every government, agrees on those. Fundamental notions of human rights have been traced to ideas, hints, and precursors in various ancient societies. More recently, Magna Carta, 1215, and products of Western Enlightenment thought such as the American Bill of Rights and the French Revolutionary Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, followed by similar charters of rights and freedoms around the world. Crucially, those are all national in scope and character, and thus necessarily express their national identities, real or aspirational. Efforts to articulate transnational rights and norms begin to emerge in 19th century abolitionist and suffragist movements, and then humanitarian sources such as the Red Cross movement of the 1860s and the Geneva Conventions beginning in 1929, primarily as reactions to large-scale conflict. Which brings us to World War II and the numerous efforts to pick up the pieces and put a deeply riven world back together again for the better. In the immediate aftermath of the war, the fledgling United Nations begins to structure itself more formally, including a standing Commission on Human Rights, which was assigned the duty of creating something like an International Bill of Rights. Eleanor Roosevelt, at this point widowed and globally famous, was appointed by President Truman as a U.S. delegate to the General Assembly, and was promptly offered the chair of the drafting committee in early 1947. Canadian legal scholar John Peters Humphrey began the work, which René Cassin, a French jurist, turned into a first draft. Other members of the committee represented China, then a republic, Lebanon, Australia, Chile, the Soviet Union, and the UK. Proceeding from a firm conviction that there were fundamental shared notions of human rights, and moreover that identifying those could unite the world, and after considerable consultation, commentary, and negotiations, they produced a final draft for deliberation and approval 
in May of 1948. Predictably, the process of writing, drafting, and adoption is a long and occasionally sordid tale of personal and national egos quibbling over the precise meaning of words, political brinksmanship, and dogged determination to get the darn thing done. Equally predictably, over the next several months there were dozens of meetings and intense scrutiny on every single word and the overall idea in general. The apartheid government of South Africa objected to the word dignity. The American Anthropological Association warned that articulating individual rights without accounting for relevant social groups and cultures and their modes of behavior was problematic. Many speeches in American life expressed concern about whether the Declaration would supersede or override existing constitutional provisions and lead to a world government beyond national control. Criticisms have continued long beyond adoption, that the Declaration emerges from a strongly Western colonialist imperialist perspective, or that some provisions run counter to traditional notions of marriage and family, or to specific traditions, leading, for example, to the adoption of the separate Cairo Declaration on Human Rights in Islam in 1990. In the end, however, adopted it was, in the Palais des Cheyens, across the Seine from the Eiffel Tower, on December 10, 1948, in a dramatic roll-call vote at nearly the stroke of midnight, starting with Burma, drawn by Lot. The Soviet Union and five other soon-to-be Warsaw Pact nations abstained after attempting to heavily amend or delay it, along with South Africa and Saudi Arabia, based on the article protecting the right to change one's beliefs. Honduras and Yemen were absent, so the final tally was 48 to nothing. In the words of the Australian General Assembly Chair, the first occasion on which the organized community of nations had made a declaration of human rights. Bear in mind, the United Nations at this point consisted of the victors from World War II, hence no Germany, Italy, Japan. There appears to have been no signing ceremony, no John Hancock-like flourish, no solemnization of the document. One wonders if that bespoke fear of the very real prospect it wouldn't get the two-thirds vote required. The approved text opens with a page or so of rather bland prefatory clauses, starting with, Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. Okay. Article 1 raises the rhetorical tone substantially. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. The rest of its 30 articles borrow structure from the Napoleonic Code by way of Cassin and are also meant, stay with me here, to embody the portico of a Greek temple. The foundation is those basic rights and their universality to all people. Then there are four pillars of more detailed sets of rights. First, life, liberty, personhood, and personal security, including equal protection, fair and public hearings, presumptions of innocence, and prohibitions of slavery, torture, and exile. Second, rights in civil society, including privacy, freedom of movement and residence, asylum, the right to a nationality, and to marry and found a family by mutual free consent. Third, rights of thought, opinion, expression, and assembly, including participation in government and elections, and fourth, economic, social, and cultural rights, including the right to work and equal pay, 
rest, leisure and paid holidays, adequate standards of living, education, and participation in the cultural life of the community. Finally, here we go, the pediment or roof capping all of these, the right to social order so that all these rights and freedoms can be realized, the duties of everyone to their community, and a prohibition against people or states from using their rights to destroy the rights of others. Some of those to 21st century Western ears seem obvious to the point of absurdity, largely because they've been embodied in constitutions and practice for centuries in many parts of the world. But the fact they're included does tell you something. Others seem less obvious. It makes for enlightening reading, no matter your background. One might fairly ask, okay, so what? It is purposely called a declaration rather than a treaty or a compact. It has no legal force and no enforcement mechanisms, and thus much is made in descriptions and analysis of its moral authority as a statement on behalf of all of humanity. As such, it has served as a standard by which societies are judged, has been cited in numerous judicial decisions around the world, and is excerpted, referred to, or explicitly cited in the constitutions of a number of countries. There's also no provision for amendment, though numerous additional protocols and covenants have been subsequently adopted in more specific domains, the rights of the child and of women, for example. It's also, Guinness World Record tells us, the most translated document in history, with versions in over 500 languages. From today's perspective, it feels like there was a very narrow window in which such a document could be conceived and adopted. The League of Nations had a flaccid wave towards something like human rights buried at the end of its covenant, which went precisely nowhere. Tensions were already high in 1948, and within a few years the world would be a much harder and much different place as post-war euphoria rapidly faded, the Cold War got colder, the Chinese Revolution resulted in the People's Republic, and more Islamist governments formed. In their attempt to produce a timeless document, the framers reveal a great deal about their own era, and indeed, when else might such a thing have been achievable, let alone today? So we find ourselves where we began. What gives you the right? Or more generally, what gives anybody any rights and how do we know and record those? In the drafting, International Bill of Rights gradually gave way to universal declaration, more words very carefully chosen. Universal was meant to signify its application to all people rather than just to the governments that signed on, an impetus that ran through the whole process, including a deep and broad investigation by a committee of philosophers convened by UNESCO, which said they were convinced that the members of the United Nations share common convictions on which human rights depend, without committing themselves to exactly what they were. As a declaration, it does what it says it does. It declares, articulates, pronounces what fundamental human rights are. And since it's been adopted and now signed onto by all 193 UN member nations, those are fundamental human rights because the Universal Declaration of Human Rights says so, as long as nobody asks necessarily why or how. Which may be, more or less, about the most we have a right to hope for.